Welcome back to Roshcast, episode number 29. This week, we'll go from psychiatry to trauma with a brief detour to pediatrics. Wait, did you just say trauma? Aren't we running a trauma contest? Is that the prize? Did you just give it away already? Not yet, but the prize will be won in this episode today. So listen up and don't forget to email us at roshcast at roshreview.com or tweet at us at roshcast with the exact time in the episode when you hear the trauma ringtone. But for now, let's get started with a rapid review. All right, so let's try something different this week. Let's review some of the rapid reviews that Yehuda has been putting up on the blog. They're very high yield and definitely worth checking out. We'll cover some endocrine. What are the classic physical exam findings and laboratory findings associated with hypothyroidism? I'll start with the lab findings. With primary hypothyroidism, you'd expect a high TSH and a low T4. On physical, you may see periorbital edema, dry skin, and coarse brittle hair. Patients often complain of weakness, fatigue, facial swelling, constipation, cold intolerance, and weight gain. Next up, a side effect of diabetes. What physical exam findings are seen with acanthosis nigricans? With acanthosis nigricans, you would expect thickened, velvety, darkly pigmented plaques on the neck or axilla. Last one for the day, what are the most common causes of Cushing syndrome and how is Cushing syndrome diagnosed? Cushing syndrome is most commonly caused by hypercortisolism from an ACTH-secreting pituitary tumor. It's diagnosed by 24-hour urine cortisol and serum ACTH levels. Great start. Let's kick this week's episode off with some psychiatry. You're working in the ED when the police bring in a 26-year-old man who is involved in a bar fight. The patient's well-known to the staff as he frequently seeks treatment in the ED for injuries related to fights and alcohol abuse. He's been caught smoking cigarettes in the ED bathroom, has urinated on the floor, and has been known to steal food trays and other patients' belongings. As you enter his examination room, you overhear him giving the registration clerk a false identity. Which of the following personality disorders best fits this patient's behavior? Is it A, antisocial, B, borderline, C, paranoid, or D, schizoid? Definitely a tough situation, which we deal with all too frequently. This patient is displaying nearly all the characteristics of choice A, antisocial personality disorder. That's correct, but can you be a bit more specific for the listeners? Sure. First, he has a blatant disregard for others. He's stealing food and stealing belongings. He also casually violates societal norms, such as urinating on the floor and smoking in the hospital. Clinching the diagnosis, he seems to have a complete lack of remorse for his actions. You got all the main features, but there's a couple others as well. He's aggressive with frequent altercations. He's irritable and appears impulsive. Frequent encounters with law enforcement is another common feature. These patients are definitely some of the tougher ones to treat in the ED. Do you have any helpful tips for dealing with extreme cases like the one this prompt suggested? Yeah, if possible, avoid becoming angry. I know it's easier said than done, and it's not going to be helpful for you or for the patient. Make sure to focus on the chief complaint and set limits and expectations early. Reminding the patient of the ground rules can go a really long way. While we're here, why don't I take a second to review the other personality disorders here too. Borderline personality disorder is another cluster B disorder. It's characterized by self-destructive, impulsive behavior. Such patients have erratic emotions and are quite often sexual and are always in crisis. Choice C, paranoid personality disorder, that's a cluster A disorder. Paranoid patients are often cold, humorless, and suspicious. Lastly, choice D, schizoid personality disorder, that's another cluster A disorder. Schizoid patients are often loners with few friends and are indifferent to praise and criticism. Nice review. Let's move out of the psych ER and talk some neonatal resuscitation. A term pregnant patient presents to the ED in active labor and delivers. There's no meconium seen, but the baby has a weak cry and poor tone initially. After clearing the airway, drying the baby vigorously, and providing warmth, the poor tone persists. On exam, the heart rate is 85, and the newborn appears apneic. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step? Is it A, administer atropine, 
B, administer epinephrine, C, begin chest compressions, or D, provide positive pressure ventilations. If there's one takeaway from the PALS refresher class we just took, it's definitely to appreciate the importance of ventilation. So I'll go with choice D, provide positive pressure ventilation. Exactly. We're going to post a great algorithm on the blog, but I think it's worth running through here as well. For sure. Just so we're all clear, this isn't some rare occurrence. It's actually quite common. About 10% of newborns require some resuscitative assistance and 1% require advanced measures. In this case, the bradycardia, defined as a heart rate of less than 100, reflects inadequate ventilation and oxygenation and is a marker of hypoxia. That's true, but you jumped ahead. Let's start at the beginning of the algorithm. After birth, assess the ABCs. If the baby's not breathing, crying, or lacks appropriate tone, warm, dry, stimulate, and clear the airway. Usually this is all that's required. If after these measures, the heart rate is still less than 100 or the baby is gasping or apneic, begin positive pressure ventilation. If, even after positive pressure ventilation, the heart rate is still less than 100, take ventilatory corrective steps like airway repositioning. Usually, a few good positive pressure ventilation breaths will correct the situation. But if the heart rate falls below 60 at this point, you need to consider intubation and start chest compressions via the standard PALS algorithm, with coordinated compressions and breaths in addition to epinephrine at routine intervals. So to sum it all up, since that's a lot, start with non-invasive measures like warming, drying, and stimulation. Suction the airway if needed. Bradycardia may indicate hypoxia, so begin positive pressure ventilation, monitoring for an increase in heart rate. If no improvement, reposition the airway. Again, monitor for heart rate improvement. If no improvement, you've entered the cardiac arrest algorithm and consider an advanced airway and chest compressions. And let me just clarify one more point here. When we say ventilation, we aren't talking the adult rate. These need to be at a rate of 40 to 60 breaths per minute for neonates. Great point. All right, you're up next. It looks like the same child is back, 13 years later, this time with a head injury. A 13-year-old boy with no past medical history presents with a headache three days after a closed head injury. The patient states that he stood up from kneeling and hit the top of his head on a wooden cabinet. There was no loss of consciousness or seizure activity. In addition to the headache, he complains of a difficulty concentrating at school and dizziness. His physical exam is unremarkable. What management is indicated? Is it A, a CT scan of the head with contrast, B, a CT scan of the head without contrast, C, an MRI of the brain, or D, neurology referral? Really important question that's actually backed by a lot of great research. The answer here is choice D, a neurology referral. This child suffered what we would classify as a minor traumatic brain injury and likely as a post-concussive syndrome. Thanks to the good folks at the PCAR network, we have pretty clear guidelines on which children need imaging. I'll run through some of it now. If the child's over 2, the first question to ask is if the GCS is less than or equal to 14, or are there signs of basilar skull fracture or signs of altered mental status? If yes, the patient has a 4.3% chance of a clinically important TBI. If no, the next question to ask would be if there was a loss of consciousness, a history of vomiting, a severe headache, or if there was a severe mechanism. If yes in this case, there's a 0.9% chance of clinically important TBI, and the official recommendation is for observation over imaging. If no, there is a less than 0.05% chance of significant TBI, so imaging just isn't recommended. And let me clarify the severe mechanism portion of your statement. Severe mechanisms include MVCs with patient ejections, a rollover, or death of another passenger, a pedestrian or bicyclist without a helmet struck by a vehicle, a fall of more than 1.5 meters, or the head being struck by a high-impact object. So our patient has a less than 0.05% chance of significant TBI, so he doesn't require imaging. In addition, he also has many of the classic nonspecific findings of a post-concussive syndrome, which include headache, dizziness, confusion, amnesia, difficulty concentrating, and blurry vision without a focal neurologic finding. 
Unfortunately, even with minor TBI, patients may have chronic and debilitating symptoms that persist for quite some time. This is why a neurology referral is recommended, as in this question, for functional testing and tracking of symptom resolution. And don't forget about appropriate counseling to patients and their parents about concussions, post-concussive syndrome, and the risk of more severe injury with second impact if they return to contact sports too soon. As with all things in the ED, assuring safe and appropriate follow-up is key. EMS just called. It's a 37-year-old female who was struck by a motor vehicle while crossing the street. You're considering all the possibilities while they roll up, which makes you think, which of the following organs is the most commonly injured in adult blunt abdominal trauma? Is it A, the bladder, B, the intestine, C, the liver, or D, the spleen? Haven't heard that ringtone in a while, but the most commonly injured organ in adult blunt abdominal trauma is choice D, the spleen. That's absolutely correct, and the next most common would actually be choice C, the liver. In terms of management, many splenic injuries may be managed conservatively as long as the patient is hemodynamically stable. Splenic injuries can be broken down into grades 1 through 5. Grade 1 injuries include lacerations that are less than 1 centimeter deep and a subcapsular hematoma less than 1 centimeter in diameter. Grade 2 injuries include 1 to 3 centimeter lax with subcapsular or central hematomas 1 to 3 centimeters in diameter. Grade 3 injuries include 3 to 10 centimeter lacerations with subcapsular or central hematomas 3 to 10 centimeters in diameter. Grade 4 injuries include all lax greater than 10 centimeters deep or subcapsular or central hematomas greater than 10 centimeters. And lastly, grade 5 injuries include maceration or devascularization of any splenic tissue. And we'll put a table up on the blog for you to review as well. In terms of the other answers listed, the intestines are the most common hollow viscous organ injured in blunt abdominal trauma, but overall injuries to the intestines are far less common. In choice A, the bladder, that's also less common, and it's frequently associated with significant pelvic fractures. And one more quick point about intestinal injuries, they're commonly caused by a sudden deceleration with compression of the bowel against something like a seatbelt or bicycle handlebars. CT, unfortunately, has pretty low sensitivity for such injuries. Remember to look for seatbelt sign on physical exam and free air under the diaphragm on the standard trauma portable chest when you're suspicious for such injuries. All great points. And in terms of management, blunt abdominal trauma can often be managed non-operatively, but any hemodynamic instability, signs of peritonitis or free air on the chest x-ray, warrants immediate laparotomy. Yeah, this is definitely the board answer for now, but it's something to watch for in the future as non-invasive management with observation and minimally invasive intervention via interventional radiology are both gaining favor. Okay, you're up for the next one. An 18-year-old man presents with red eyes. He's been sick with upper respiratory symptoms for two days. He has bilateral conjunctival injection with scant discharge. He also has rhinorrhea and sounds congested. He has a palpable preauricular lymph node on the left. Which of the following is the most likely cause of his red eyes? Is it A, adenovirus, B, rhinovirus, C, staph aureus, or D, strep pneumonia? This is, of course, classic conjunctivitis, which is most commonly caused by viruses. And of the viral causes, adenovirus is the most common etiology. So I'll go with choice A. That's right. And conjunctivitis can present in a variety of ways, usually with redness, foreign body sensation, drainage, swelling of the lid, and even crusting in the morning. Patients, however, should not present with visual changes or photophobia. And as I stated before, it's commonly caused by viruses, but it may also be caused by allergens, toxins, and bacteria. Complicating matters further, it's often very difficult to distinguish between viral and bacterial causes. Although generalization, viral infections usually have more redness, itching, and irritation than bacterial infections. They tend to have a longer duration of symptoms too. Preauricular adenopathy, just like this guy has, is associated more with viral etiologies. And viral conjunctivitis often occurs concomitantly with other viral symptoms like rhinorrhea and congestion. 
And while we're generalizing, in terms of the discharge, bacterial conjunctivitis is associated with a mucoperiolent discharge, whereas viral is associated with a watery discharge, and allergic is rarely associated with any discharge. Viral and allergic conjunctivitis are classically puritic, whereas bacterial conjunctivitis is not. Treatment is with supportive care, including compresses and artificial tears. Perhaps even more importantly, patients should be reminded to frequently wash their hands as conjunctivitis is typically very contagious. In the case of a bacterial infection, topical antibiotics could be prescribed. Great review. All right, you're up for the last question of the day, and we're sticking with infectious disease, but we're moving from the eyes to the finger, and no, the conjunctivitis did not spread. A 19-year-old man presents with pain in his index finger. Which of the following is suggestive of flexor tenosynovitis? Is it A, delayed capillary refill, B, holding the finger fully extended, C, pain on passive extension, or D, swelling localized to the volar aspect of the finger? Pain with passive range of motion is one of Knievel's criteria for flexor tenosynovitis, so the answer here would be choice C, pain on passive extension. Nice job. Why don't you review all of Knievel's criteria for us? Sure. Knievel's signs are the four cardinal signs of acute flexor tenosynovitis. The first is tenderness along the course of the flexor tendon. The second is fusiform or symmetrical swelling of the finger. The third is pain with passive range of motion. And the fourth is a flexed posture of the finger. Perfect. And most commonly, the infection is caused by penetrating trauma and direct inoculation of the actual sheath, but direct spread from other areas of the hand can occur as well. Staph aureus and streptococci are the most common causative organisms. Don't underestimate how sick patients with flexor tenosynovitis can be. They need prompt antibiotic treatment, admission, and likely operative drainage to control the infectious source. This should be considered a surgical emergency. And while we're talking finger infections, can you also define a felon for us? Sure, a felon is an infection of the pulp of the distal finger or thumb. Unlike flexor tenosynovitis, felons are far more mild and may be managed outpatient. All right, so that wraps up the new material for episode 29. Let's close out with a rapid review. Those with antisocial personality disorder often display a blatant disregard for others, violate societal norms, and lack a remorse for their actions. They're often aggressive, irritable, and impulsive. Borderline personality disorder is a cluster B personality disorder and is characterized by self-destructive, impulsive behavior. They often have erratic emotions and may come off as being overly sexual and are frequently in crisis. Paranoid personality disorder is a cluster A personality disorder. Paranoid patients are often cold, humorless, and suspicious. Schizoid personality disorder is another cluster A personality disorder. Schizoid patients are often loners with few friends who are indifferent to praise or criticism. The first step in a neonatal resuscitation is to warm, dry, and stimulate the neonate and clear the airway if necessary. If there is no response to these measures, begin positive pressure ventilation at a rate of 40 to 60 breaths per minute. Bradycardia in a newborn is often a sign of hypoxia. In a child over 2 with a GCS less than or equal to 14, or if there are signs of basilar skull fracture or signs of altered mental status, there's a 4.3% chance of a clinically important traumatic brain injury. These children require head imaging. Post-concussive syndrome may present with many nonspecific symptoms, including headache, dizziness, confusion, amnesia, difficulty concentrating, and blurry vision without a focal neurologic finding. All patients with post-concussive syndromes should be referred to a neurologist for functional testing and tracking of symptom resolution. Remember to caution patients about returning to contact sports too soon to prevent a second impact. The most commonly injured organ in adult blunt abdominal trauma is the spleen. The liver is the second most commonly injured organ. Splenic lacerations are graded 1 to 5. Most can be managed non-operatively. Hemodynamic instability, however, warrants an exploratory laparotomy. 
Conjunctivitis most commonly presents with redness, foreign body sensation, drainage, swelling of the lid, and even crusting in the morning. Treatment is supportive with compresses and artificial tears. The most common cause of conjunctivitis is a viral infection, with adenovirus being the most common virus. There are four cardinal signs of acute flexor tenosynovitis. One, tenderness along the course of the flexor tendon. Two, fusiform or symmetrical swelling of the finger. Three, pain with passive range of motion. And four, a flexed posture of the finger. Flexor tenosynovitis is most commonly caused by penetrating trauma and direct inoculation of the actual sheath, but direct spread from other areas of the hand can occur as well. Flexor tenosynovitis is a surgical emergency and requires antibiotics and hand surgery consultation. All right, so that wraps up the rapid review as well as episode 29. Congratulations to the interns on surviving your first month of residency. Don't forget that you can always reach out to us via email with suggestions or any comments about the podcast. And lastly, as you begin to churn your way through the Rosh review, don't forget you can write, quote, Roshcast in the submit feedback box if you have any specific questions you think we should review on the podcast. Talk to you guys in two weeks. Thank you.